Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk? Today, we're going to talk about Fathers Matter. Carrie Kellerman, author of Consider Homeschooling, joins me in studio, and Prager and Ivy League Enlightenment. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I hope everyone watching and listening had a great Father's Day yesterday. Father's Day is just a great holiday. You know, I meant to look up whether they celebrate this in other countries or just America, but I love that in America we actually set aside a holiday for Father's Day and for Mother's Day. And I want to say just a few words about fathers in America. You know, there are a lot of uh, organizations, and not just religious organizations, but those too, who recently tried to write and speak more about the idea of why fathers matter. Just the positive message of a father's influence in a child's life is simply irreplaceable and wonderful, and it's a great, great thing to be able to have a father as a part of your child's life. And so their organizations, uh, one was called Child Trends, that just wrote a list out of why things, why fathers matter in kids' lives. Um, and they talk about the difference between fathers and mothers. And generally speaking, fathers tend to be perhaps a little firmer, or disciplinarians. Uh, they create role models for their children. They help children see and watch how a relationship works between two responsible adults caring for children in their unique roles of father and mother. So they had a great bunch of examples uh, and, and stories. But I want to hit a couple other things about Father's Day uh, in America and then around the world. Uh, number one is, I found this most amazing statistic. The United States has the world's highest rate of children living in single parent households in the world. Don't you think that's amazing? I mean, a country full of, uh, you know, a Judeo-Christian country, at least historically, a country where families are certainly honored in many, many ways, and yet America has the highest percentage of children living in single parent households. This is not a positive trend. And I wanna mention a couple of reasons why that may uh, be the case. One is, and we've talked in the show many times about the idea that leftism works kind of like a snake slithering in to, in many, many arenas of life, not really overtly announcing, hey, we're here to change your country, we're here to take over your country, we're here to change all the foundational ideas of your country, but instead they come in with very kind of uh, almost folksy sounding messages in a whole variety of ways. But as we watch the pair, we're really watching the rise of Marxism in Washington, rising, watching how the American left has been just overtaken by Marxism. And we use the expression cultural Marxism. We've talked about that. We've talked about the economic Marxism and the vast, vast um, agenda of the American left in taking more and more control over American society, culture, economy, businesses, everything about America. You might be interested to know that Karl Marx, the happy father of Marxism, or rather unhappy, if you listened to my show several months ago, there was a gentleman who'd written a, an in-depth biography of Karl Marx, a very, very twisted and dark man, very mentally unhealthy. Karl Marx, in addition to what everyone already knew that he wanted to abolish in society, was private property. And everyone knows, yeah, the you know, no one owns anything and the government owns everything. That was the idea of Karl Marx. Somehow he was going to 
improve life by removing the ability of individuals to own things and that the government would own everything. So abolition of private property, his big thing. But he had five other things he also talked about that was important to abolish, to reach his utopia of Marxism or socialism. One of the top items in addition to eliminating private property, eliminating the family. He actually advocated for the advancement of society, the benefit to people if we just get rid of the silly idea of the family. And he, Karl Marx, acknowledged there are a lot of people who actually might have liked his economic ideas and kind of liked the idea of the government owning things and you know, uh, deciding how much you can earn, how much you can own. But many of his followers kind of uh, resisted the idea, why do we have to abolish family? And the answer, allow me to explain, the answer, if you're a true genuine Marxist, is you have to destroy family because family is the unit that carries on and teaches to children and the next generation your faith, your values, your morals, your sense of right and wrong. And when you are a Marxist and you want to control everything about society, you cannot have these units out there that are in some way interfering with the government's ability to establish morality out of the government. The family is a unit that helps strengthen children and the next generation to learn really what life is all about, what faith is all about, what truth is all about. But one example that Marx gave of the reason or the reason why family was absolutely unnecessary was because, said he, the only reason people care about families, this is Karl Marx, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but the only reason people really care about families is because it's an evil institution that holds on to wealth. It holds on to wealth and, and, and you know, it passes on the next generation and families own wealth together. They own property, they own homes. And once private property ownership has been eliminated, said Marx, no one will really care about families anymore. No one will really care if we eliminate them once you eliminate private property because the only value he could see in private, in, in the idea of families, was private property. I mean, the guy, as you heard a few weeks ago, was completely sick. I mean, not, not a mentally healthy man, but this was actually part of his explanation was, the reason we don't really have to have families is because after all, once private wealth is eliminated, what other function could family serve? So back to Father's Day, I'll tell you the function that fathers serve in families in America, and hopefully we can reverse the trend in America of having so many families where it's a single parent family, a mom, usually the mom, trying to raise a child. Karl Marx could not figure out what value families gave and what value especially fathers gave. And many of those values are things that you all know if you celebrated Father's Day with your father, with your kids, with your grandfather, you understand fathers do just a world of good for children. They are really role models teaching kids what it looks like to care for a family, to nurture, to raise, to protect. You see, they watch their father going in and out of the door every day, and sometimes the mom too, but going to work, learning it takes work to survive. It takes work in order to produce value, to take care of your home. Fathers are often the moral teachers. Usually both parents take their kids to Sunday school or church, but dads are moral teachers. Dads, as I said earlier, often the disciplinarian, the one that says, you know, your mom is pretty soft, but not me. I'm making the rules and here's what they are. They teach kids discipline and honor 
there is just a, a world of good fathers do in this country. And I want to just tell you briefly about what happens, has happened in America as we've had the diminishment of fatherhood, the diminishing numbers of families in which parents, uh, the family consists of a mom and the kids. Just a few simple statistics. And before I give these, I'll say this. There are many families who have are single parent homes, a single mom homes through no fault of the mom, whether it is because of being widowed or being abandoned by a dad. There are plenty of people who come out of single parent homes, strong and healthy and normal and functioning adults. That is true, but it's not the ideal. It's not the goal to make, to try to produce more of those. Because the simple fact is, as we have abandoned the importance of family in the society, and we have the rise in the, single, the number percentage of kids growing up in single parent homes, here are some statistics to think about. A little reality check on this claim that families don't matter. As one example, the strongest predictor of whether a person will end up in prison, strongest predictor, single strongest factor predictor, is that they were raised by a single parent. In 1996, 70% of the inmates in state juvenile detention centers serving long sentences were raised by single mothers. The proportion of single parent households in a community predicts its rate of violent crime. Literally, in a community with a large number of single parent homes, you have a much higher crime rate than you do in communities where the average family is a mom and a dad, an intact family unit. 72% of juvenile murderers, 60% of rapists come from single mother homes. After controlling for single motherhood, the difference between black and white crime rates disappeared. Let me say that again. People lament the, the crime rates in our country and why there's, such a, there's a higher crime rate in especially minority communities. After you control for single motherhood, the difference between black and white crime rates disappears. I could go through, I have pages in front of me, I could read to you of the statistics, the simple outcome that it is better for a child to have two parents in the home. There are actual studies after study after study showing if you grow, grow up in a single parent home, you're more likely to drop out of high school, join a gang, get pregnant, go to jail, join, just in, in all ways fall apart. Even mental illness is higher, you have higher rate for children growing up in single parent homes. And I say all this to say, God bless women who are trying their best to raise a child without a dad around. I support them, I want them to be able to do the best they can. I hope that every child can turn out well. But as a society, as a culture, if we cannot admit to ourselves the statistical facts, flat out facts, that it's actually better for a child to grow up in a two parent home with a dad and a mother role modeling for them, we really are doing a disservice to the children. Marxists who like this dissolving of the family unit engage in mockery about the idea that parenthood and, and intact families matter. The whole media mockery mob of the American left, when anyone ever talks about the importance of family units, the importance of marriage, start in lecturing about, oh, this is just the far right Christian people trying to foist your morality in all of us. This is just the Bible thumpers, you know, you keep your religion out of our lives. Forget about religion. I mean, I think actually, I think there is a biblical basis for the idea of an intact family. But even if you don't believe that, if it doesn't matter to you, the simple fact is, statistically speaking, it's far kinder, better, more loving, more caring for children in a society for the society to value intact families and to value fathers. And so again, I'll tell you, I hope that you all had a lovely, wonderful celebration of Father's Day yesterday. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. Probably longer than five. 
So I want to turn right now to, I told you we have a guest joining us in the studio. She's here in the studio. I'm going to show you her book. Uh, this is her book, and um, it is, uh, you can see it right here. It's called Consider Homeschooling. And I'll tell you a quick thing. So uh, Carrie Kellerman is the author. She actually is a longtime friend, um, and she's actually the first homeschool mother I ever met that I realized, wow, because I grew up in New York, and I didn't really have a very positive view of, of homeschooling because I didn't know anyone who did it, and, and it just seemed kind of alarming to me. We've been in Texas now 21 years. Carrie's a good friend, and I learned from her. She has produced, she and her husband have produced three fabulous, wonderful children, young adults. And so she wrote about not how to homeschool, because there's a lot about that out there, but why to homeschool. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Carrie Kellman. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. So again, I'll show my, our listeners your book, Consider Homeschooling. Uh, and I want to just, uh, I'll tell you, I started looking at it today and um, I realized you put a lot of thought into this, the decision to homeschool and maybe a little bit of persuasion because your husband is actually a public school teacher. Yes. So talk about how that started. We're a little bit of an odd couple that way. <laughs> so I have a public school teacher husband. Uh, he's actually Canadian. He taught up in Canada for several years, was award-winning teacher up there. When we moved back to Dallas, um, he, you know, I, that was about the time our children were about the age to enter school. And I looked at the schools in our neighborhood and I, I just didn't, didn't fit, feel like a good fit for my kids. I had already kind of started thinking about homeschooling before I even met Russ and before I had kids. And so we, we looked just to see what the options were. We looked into pri uh, private school and it was just beyond our financial means to do so. So there was really only one alternative that we hadn't yet explored very closely. So I started doing my homework about it. And I finally said, honey, I, I, think, I think I wanna homeschool our kids. And that's how, <laughs> that's how the conversation got started and that's how the book gets started. Oh, I, yeah, actually it's kind of funny because I don't know the exact words, but it's kind of like, why is that his answer? <laughs> Why would you want to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do want to get into it. You have many great points in your book, but the, what is the, I mean, besides not finding the perfect public school or private school, because I think a lot of people pick a school and say, well, it was pretty good. It was okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What were the things you were looking for that you didn't think you would find in the public schools? There's not a teacher on this planet that's going to love my kids the way I do. So there's two elements to education. There's what's being taught and there's who's being taught. And when it comes to the who, your own kids, you are the world's leading expert. Well, that's a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you you launched this homeschooling. To be really clear, you homeschooled all three kids. Yes. From K whatever, through 12. K through 12. Okay. And that well, I don't want to invade their privacy, but they're now one still in college. Is that right? No. Um, actually, they're all done. They're all in their early to mid 20s. Okay. And, and they, they wrote the afterward their own afterward to the book. <laughs> Okay. All right then. So well, the proof is in the pudding. You can take a look for yourself and read what they have to say about it as, as adults looking back. Yeah. Well, actually, and you also have some pretty great pictures in there. I mean, you have a beautiful family, of course, but I mean, great pictures in there. So you use one example. I mean, I'm going to run through a bunch of things. One was you use this term. And I, okay, here it is. Uh, one person you've spoken to about or just were learning from about schooling and use the expression the curiosity sponge yes can you just talk about that yes so in your child's mind if you picture your child's mind as a sponge that's absorbing what's being given to it uh, it's their curiosity they're curious about all kinds of different subjects if you as the parent that has the power of the first impression 
are able to fill their curiosity, so satisfy their curiosity with what you deem valuable and important, then other information they encounter on the subject just kind of rolls off. But if you never talk about a subject with your child, um, somebody else can come along and give them the first impression and now what you have to say kind of rolls off. So it's real important as a parent to be the first one to satisfy your child's curiosity on certain subjects. And in this particular case, it was a mom talking at a meeting about satisfying her child's curiosity on sexual topics. So, that story, actually go ahead and tell that story. Okay, that I'll long. tell the story. This woman lives here in Dallas, she's fabulous. But anyway, she was a speaker at a meeting called Mothers of Preschoolers. And at the time, I just had one kiddo, he was one and a half probably. And so the topic of the meeting was how to talk to your kindergartner, how to talk to your child before about sex before they go to kindergarten. And we all just went, what? What? We were shocked that this was a topic of a speaker. So we came back the next meeting and she said, I'm not talking about having a detailed talk, you know, so, you know, the talk with your preschooler, but I am telling you that when they express natural curiosity, go ahead and you be the one to, to be first, make a first impression with your child and you tell your child what you think is valuable, important for them to know. And in her case, she said, our beliefs are sex is God's gift to marriage. It's how husbands and wives have a baby and it should be kept private. That's all her little girl knew. That's all she needed to know at that time. Well, that little bit of information that went into her daughter's mind was really came into play. It was very important because she met a little girl at kindergarten and she was telling her mom about this little girl. And she, this little girl uh, had a teenage brother that watched her after school. And she said, I don't think you're ever gonna let me go play at her house. And her mother said, well, why not? She said, because after school she watches her brother and his girlfriend have sex. And she just about <laughs> fell, she just about fell off the kitchen table chair and she just, just like, uh, and she tried to kind of close her yeah. jaw and she said, well, why, I'm cool, I'm cool, go ahead, yeah. <laughs> why, why do you think you shouldn't do that? And she said, well, because you said it was for marriage and they're not married. And you said it should be kept private and so I know we shouldn't be watching. So this, these oh little pieces gosh. of information went into this little five-year-old girl's mind and it protected her from a very inappropriate situation because her mother had been first to saturate that sponge in her child's mind. You know, on that topic of, I, I love mm -hmm. that picture, that mental picture of a curiosity sponge, mm -hmm. but it is so true, it's evident now in education where your kids are learning things at school. We used to oh, think yeah. your kids go off to school and they're gonna learn uh, mathematics, they're gonna mm -hmm. learn science, biology, mm -hmm. whatever the subjects are in school. And we, many parents are now waking up to the, for the first time realizing, you guys are learning what about mm -hmm. creation or what about mm -hmm. the climate mm -hmm. or what about, you know, I mean, the, the list of the array of topics, certainly very tender ones, mm -hmm. uh, like race relations and America, racial history, the meaning of America, mm -hmm. all these topics where you parents, you don't necessarily think, you don't have a list of things to make sure they know your impression, but when they're learning things at school and then they come home and tell you, your the curiosity sponge has been filled by the teacher and you're trying to undo it at, right. at home. Right, it puts you on the defense as a parent. Yes. Because even, you know, here's this child, she had her values filled by her mother on that topic, but what about all the other topics? Oh. And what about all the other areas of curiosity? And is a teacher full of a classroom with a dozen kids, is she able to be the one or is, are there other kids in the know 
sitting next to your child that has teenage brothers telling your child things that they know that your child doesn't know. So it's just, <laughs> you know, you're on, the, you're on defense as a parent. You most certainly, I, I thought that was a brilliant point. And actually, as I say, it really matters now more than ever because mm -hmm. schools go so much further oh, beyond what yeah. you have normally would assume they're learn your kids are teaching, learning about. And, right. and, you're, and you're at home on the defense about what the meaning of marriage is, what, mm -hmm. what, what, what you know, your identity is, that your sexual identity, whether you are an it and you get to choose. I mm -hmm. mean, all these things, the schools tell your kids. Okay, another thing I really liked, and I love this point. I mean, I do, I'm gonna let you just <laughs> talk more about me. I love you, talk about the idea of the way children arise or people respond to their expectations about you. Yes. Uh, and so if you, you know, if you're a teacher thinks, ah, oh, these dang kids, I got it on, or whatever you think, mm -hmm. versus the parent and filling your heart right. with your expectation about them. Just talk about that and the role it played in, in your homeschooling. Okay, well, in, in the book, I tell a story about a professor at a small college, and he was told that section two of a class, he was mandatory class for freshmen, he was told that section two had all the best students in it, all the cream of the crop of the entire freshman class. So he taught sections one, two, and three, but he just really looked forward to section two because someone told him that that's where all the best students were. And he never t said anything. He never, he didn't think he did anything different. But when he went to go look at their grades, he was giving them better grades and their papers were thicker and had more pages. And these kids, even though he never said anything, these kids were responding to his unspoken expectations about them. Something that existed just in his mind and they responded to it. And about halfway through the semester, the Dean of Acad Academics came up to him and said, how, well, how is uh, teaching going? It's just great, I love section two. And he goes, well, is it all that different? And he goes, oh yeah. And he starts telling him about how different it was, how much better the students were. And he goes, that's interesting because we ended section two this year. We spread all the best students evenly throughout all the sections. And he, he thought, that, that can't be right. So what he stumbled upon was this power of expectation. What you think privately in your mind can affect the behavior of another person. Oh, you know, I, I completely believe that. And I think it can be true uh, with, with respect to public schools. Uh, if you think you have a class of kids who's, mm -hmm. you're aware of the parents, you think maybe they're not as dedicated to parents right? as they should be. So they're not going to, their kids aren't going to be. You can imagine how expectations play out in so many ways. Absolutely. It's, and so as a mom starting to think about my kids' future education in the classroom, I start thinking, well, is their teacher going to have high expectations for them? Right. Or low? And what about their peers? What are their peers' expectations of my kids? It, or one bad impression, your child is running late someday or is in a bad mood and says oh, something. Oh, we've all heard, heard, I mean, kids will t say, oh, a teacher will say, oh, so you're Blake's sister. Yeah. <laughs> or what, you know what I mean? And already yeah. the expectation is low yeah, and that kid, Blake, you know, the yeah. kid gets treated differently because of an association or a low expectation. And it's just, it, kids will live, yeah. up, they will live up to or down to your expectation of them. I, I love that. I want to talk about another thing because I think this, you know, uh, I told you when I first met you, I, I was honestly, you said you're homeschooling your kids. And I mean, I grew up in New York <laughs> and I practiced law in California. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone who homeschooled, number one. Mm -hmm. And number two was the impression uh, among the, you know, 
crowds I knew was kind of like, that's just kind of, you know, is, is either kind of where these parents are making an excuse and not really doing the teaching, mm -hmm. they're just mm -hmm. lazy, or they're just, it, it's extremely religious and all it is is mm -hmm. memorizing the Bible, they don't learn real things, mm -hmm. and the teachers were needed to be experts in various areas, and you couldn't be that expert. So right. you address it, you have a chapter on that, shouldn't teaching be left to the experts? So what's the answer to that? Well, when I, like I say, two components to education. One is what is being taught, and the other component is who's being taught. So when it comes to who's being taught, the world's leading expert on your own kids is you. And so that, that's going to affect how you approach your child, because a classroom is basically one size fits all. And in the book, there's a story about Jillian Lynn, who was a choreographer. She met Andrew Lloyd Webber and she choreographed, uh, choreographed Cats and Phantom of the Opera. But when she was eight years old, her school told her mother, we think she has a learning disability. So her mother takes her to see a, some kind of specialist, psychiatrist or whatever, and tells them all the problems she's having in class. She's fidgety, she bothers her classmates, all this stuff. And so the man listens carefully and then he comes up to Jillian and he says, your mother's told me all these problems you're having at school and I need to go talk to her privately. So just stay here, we're gonna walk out the room and we'll be right back. And on his way out the door, he turns on the radio and he and his mom leave the, the mom and they leave the room and he says, just watch her. And as soon as the door closed, she was up on her feet dancing to the music. And after a few minutes, he looked at the mother and said, Mrs. Lynn, your daughter isn't sick. She's a dancer. Take her to dance school. She's a kinetic learner. Yeah, yeah. And she said they went to a class and she said the people were just like me. They had to move to think. Now there's four different learning styles. What, is your teach, child's teacher in a classroom setting with 32 other kids going to be able to customize, to adapt to your child's learning style? Because most classrooms are auditory and that's yeah. only one of the four learning styles because classrooms tend to be lecture oriented. What if your child is kinetic? They have to move to think. What if your child is social like me? I wanted to discuss. Every time I learn something new, I want to talk about it. Or is your child visual? I mean, there's all these different styles. So you could, as a, as a homeschool parent, you can customize your child's education to fit their learning style. And if you have more than one kid, each kid can be different mm -hmm. in your home. Yeah. Okay. But what about the idea? I, well, I'll tell you one reason I, among, I mean, I didn't ever actually seriously consider it, but I had the thought, you know, I was so bad at math. And the idea, <laughs> I'm going to teach my kids calculus. I had a battle with my geometry teacher. Mm -hmm. and I even liked him, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so what do you do about those topics, topics you just think you're not very good at? Well, you, there's so many, this is the hardest part about homeschooling. It's choosing from all the wonderful curricular there are out there. So curriculi, I guess is the way you say it. But there's, you can go to a book fair. In fact, not far from here, there's a, there, every Mother's Day weekend, it's wall-to-wall -wall vendors, homeschool curriculum vendors. So I happen to find, I'm, math was my sore subject as well. I'm, I tend to be a little more visual. Well, there's a, there's a, math, curric <laughs> there's a ma math curriculum called Math UC. And it's got manipulatives for those that are kinetic. It's got the visuals for those that are visual. It's got it skip counting songs to learn the multiplication tables for those who have a, maybe a musical bent. So there are curriculum out there that can help. And sure enough, we would watch the lessons together. And here's what's great about homeschooling is you're, you're not this fount of knowledge and you know everything and your kids come to you and you dispense information. If you don't know something, you can learn together. You're learning with them, I love You're that. learning yeah, with yeah, them. So yeah. we would put these uh, math DVDs in together and I would learn how he was teaching them what to do. And I'm like, oh my 
gosh, you I guys are so this. lucky. <laughs> I wish I had learned math this way. Yeah. And we all had a great time with it. So. Okay, so what about, I, I mean, honestly, I love this whole why to homeschool, so I'm kind of doing a little bit of the devil's advocate, but you know, what mm -hmm. about this, what about that? So what about the idea that kids need socialization? I know you address that, but they need socialization. They go to school. I will say, before you even, whatever your answer is, I will say, I think that especially middle school for many kids is socialization torture. I mean, it is, there's usually the mean girls, you know, of which I was not, but I mean, they're, they're the mean girls, there's a cool crowd, mm -hmm. and the whole notion of, you know, you know fine, I mean, people might say, well, that's how you learn to fit in life, but actually there's phases of life that kids aren't really mm -hmm. all that nice. So tell me about socializing. Okay, so socialization, you need to look at the definition of it first. And Merriam-Webster says that socialization is the process through which a child learns the values and habits and attitudes of a society. All right, so when they're in a classroom full of their peers and the teacher has all these kids to juggle, who are they taking their social cues from? Who's teaching them the values, habits, and attitudes of the society? Their peers are. So my question back to people who wonder about socialization, I said, well, who do you want teaching your child the values, habits, and uh, yeah. values of the society? Other kids, other people's kids, or you? Because as a homeschool parent, you get to, you get to set that bar. Well, also as a homeschool parent too, you can, I assume, do occasionally sometimes have a, you know, oh. Um, oh, yeah. social plans. You have other families and, and involvement in a church right. where you have groups there. That right. Be, yeah. So there's lots of opportunities for homeschool kids to be with their peers. And that's another thing that people think socialization is, is children spending time with kids their own age. That's what they think. But when you think about it, aren't we supposed to be preparing, preparing them for lives as adults? Well, if that's, yes. if that's what we're doing, then why are we grouping them by their age? When else in their adult life is that ever going to happen? Okay, so you're, yeah. a classroom full of peers is a, basically a manufactured social construct they're not going to encounter again. Yeah, a place where everyone's their own age. That's a very good point. Right. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you do hear about children who uh, really didn't ever learn. They're not comfortable around adults. Their parents segregate them off, so you have kids' table. Well, kind of the life of kids' table. Absolutely. Table. And, and and so they don't interact with other with right. Adults well. So homeschool kids have an opportunity to be around ki kids their own age through co-ops and sport sporting activities and. Um, uh, church activities and extracurricular activities. Both my daughters did dance for years and years. My son did sports. So they have the opportunity. They just don't spend the majority of their day with them. So yeah. that's more of a natural way to interact with people <coughs> of all ages instead of just being grouped for the majority of your day with your peers because that doesn't happen again. Life. It's a very good point. Okay, so what about the idea of kids getting into college and moving on to careers? Like what, what impact is there from homeschooling on a child's life in terms of a career in, in college? Okay, so my um, son and my daughter both went to the same university and this university actually has a homeschool visitation day. They are actively seeking out and recruiting homeschool kids. Why? Because they've noticed that these kids have, the self, have a, a, a self-initiative that other kids don't normally have because they've been in a high school setting, they've been told what to do and when to do it, and they haven't had the opportunity, the time, the space to come up with one of the most critical skills you need for university and life beyond, and that's time management skills. So as my kids got older, I gave them a week's worth of assignments, and I said, you can get done by Tuesday if you want, or you, know, you can do it however you like as long as it's done by the end of the week, and they learned how to manage their own time and how to get the work done without anybody looking over the shoulder and telling them what to do. So my son will tell you, he's the first to tell you in his afterward, that when he got to university, 
his, kid, his friends were struggling to get their college work done. They just hadn't had the opportunity to flex those time management skills. Yeah. To, you know what I mean? Or to, yeah. to do them. And he said it was a lot easier for him to go from homeschool to university than it was for his friends to go from high school to university. Wow. Okay. And then also I want to talk about the um, assessment or grading of your kids. Like how do you, <laughs> if your kids, I mean, the truth is, I mean, we didn't have this at our home, but you know, we had the notion when our kids were in mm -hmm. school that you kind of earned a grade mm -hmm. and, and, or didn't earn the grade you wanted. Mm -hmm. So do you grade them in a formal way? And if you do, how does that impact your relationship with them? Okay. So here's, here's the, when you think about grading and you think about a teacher, she's got a classroom full of students. She needs to know what her class, what her kids know, and she needs to know if they're learning the material. So the grading, the tests, the quizzes, the book reports, these are the ways a teacher can tell what their students know. So basically it means it's for the good of the teacher, but it's not necessarily good for the child. It's not meant for the child. Yep. And a lot of these tests don't measure accurately what a kid knows. For example, a, a kid in third grade, uh, reads a book over the summer. Well, he gets to class in the fall and he has to write a book report to prove he read it. Well, isn't that like punishing a child for reading a book? <laughs> so here's a better way to do it. You, a homeschool parent has the opportunity, tell me about the book you just read. And so now you flip the roles and he's teaching you about the book. And so he's having to think, okay, what do I need to put in? What do I, what I need to live out? What, how do, what event? You know, what order were these events? Did they happen? You know, so he's processing. And through the process of trying to figure out what to tell you and then it going through his mind and coming out your mouth, he's learning how to think. I love that. Right before your eyes. It's called narration. And it's a wonderful way to, to and kids love to teach the, the, the adults. They love that. Oh, sure. how, how fun is that for a kid? You tell me. And so they teach you and they think it's fun. So way better than a book report. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, we could probably, first of all, I want to make sure you can tell our listeners, your book is called Consider Homeschooling mm -hmm. by Carrie Kellum. Again, here's the picture of it. How can, well, I there we go. It's backwards how I should turn it. This is really, I have to work on this. Okay. <laughs> anyway, how can people find it? I have a website and that's the only way I'm selling it. I, this is my exercise of free speech. I don't want to put it on a website that doesn't celebrate that. So you can find it at booksbycarrie.com. Okay. I don't know if, if I had Matt, I may have sent you a cry on, but can we, I don't know if we can make that very quickly, but books by, by Carrie, which is C-A-R-I, booksbycarrie.com. That's it. Booksbycarrie.com. Again, it looks like this. It's got, it's a very, great picture um, and also just a great message. And honest <laughs> to goodness, it is, it is a missing piece, I think, in the whole advocacy about homeschooling. A lot of advocacy for homeschooling focuses on kids are learning bad things in school or discipline mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. they aren't safe or discipline isn't in place. Yeah. And so this is a, it's a, it's a joyful book. I mean, Thank it's a you. very joyful book. Well, I, again, I'm married to a public school teacher and my goal was not to criticize public schools or any other type of schooling. It's basically just to make the positive case and say, hey, this is a viable alternative. And you have three unbelievably well-adjusted, <laughs> fabulous uh, young adult children. So Thank congratulations you. to you. Thank you. Okay, friends, I want to hit one more topic today. Okay, Carrie can be really nice about not criticizing uh, public school, but um, I don't have to follow that. And she, I understand, I, first of all, I really urge you to read the book. It is easy to read, it's, it's fun reading. And if you're in the phase of life where you're considering homeschooling, or maybe your, your adult children are now considering homeschooling, it's a positive message why, why it works, why it's a happy experience. 
And I cannot, I, I truly, I happen to know Carrie as a personal friend, and she really has three wonderful, well-adjusted, happy family children. A wonderful blessing. Okay, so I want to hit the last couple of stories, also related to education. You may have heard the Dennis Prager interview. He was interviewed by someone on Fox um, in which he was uh, making the point, they were asking him about how he's been really critical about public schools and the actual content of the curricula the content of the curricula, and was just basically, you know, he, he's lamenting what they teach about America. They pushed the 1619 Project from the New York Times. You talked about that before. Pushing critical race theory, pushing anti-Americanism. And he basically was making the point that if you want to save America, and this is his language, save America, and he's talking about not just help your children, but save America. His language, his words were, I warned him, uh, he said, in my opinion, the, this is uh, Dennis Prager, the first road to saving this country from the left's attempt to destroy it as we know it is to take your kids out of the schools of this country. He's actually urging, take your kids out of the schools of this country. And he went on to say, the left is primarily, the American left, he's been talking about, you know, he has previously talked about Antifa, Black Lives Matter, 1619 Project. He says, the, left's, the left is primarily concerned with deconstructing the United States of America. And I want you to listen to this quote. There's a 50-50 chance that if you send your kid to elementary school, high school, and college, they will come out holding you in contempt. If you're prepared to lose your child, keep your kid in school. And I want to comment about that because I know it sounds dramatic or drastic, and I know the homeschooling, which I, I, clearly we did not do. Our kids are all grown, uh, young adults, and did not, we did not homeschool. But I want to urge you to think about how radically the left has taken hold of the public school curricula. And this is one of my examples about termites. It's like the left are like termites. You, know, you live in your home and everything seems pretty great. And you keep it clean and you vacuum and you dust and you once in a while straighten out the pantry. You take care of your home, but unbeknownst to you, termites are working away at the foundation of your home or maybe on the the wood under your front steps or maybe on your back porch and you don't see it and you don't hear them and you don't notice the impact so all of a sudden you walk out and your front porch steps collapse and you think well, what happened here well it's actually termites who've been working at the front steps at the wood and the front steps for decades as they say while you were sleeping this is what the leftist mindset in this country. They are like termites. They have been determined for decades to undermine the very idea of America. I mentioned a moment ago earlier in the show about Karl Marx and his determination to destroy the idea of the right to own private property. And he went on to say, and to destroy the family. He also talked about the, the urgency to destroy the idea of the individual. People should not think about being individuals or have individuality. This leftist mindset, which used to be just, you know, parked in extreme left communist party in America in the 1920s, has grown in its influence in America, slithering, I'm, I'm mixing my metaphors now, slithering like a snake into the public school curricula, into the idea of what children are taught, what they're taught to believe about America, about religion, about the creation of life, about the purpose of life, everything leftists want the American child to think so they will be easily lured into accepting Marxism, socialism, communism has made its way into the public schools. 
It is why kids leave. And there were some statistics, and I hope I can find them fast enough, but there are some statistics about what kids believe these days, um, and I may not have the right thing with me, but there were statistics about what kids believe. And, I mean, truly astonishing things, like being asked about the idea of, you know, can you name the three branches of, of the federal government? And it was a majority of millennials who could not. They didn't know what it was. Didn't, didn't even know the concept, which is crucial to understanding the very structure of freedom in America. You have to understand the separation of powers and what that means, why you have three branches of government, why you don't have just a ruler, an autocratic ruler like the Marxists want. But the list of things public school kids do not know these days, it is the direct result of this Marxist, I am telling you, like termites destroying the foundation of your house. They've been working away at the public school curricula in this country for decades, destroying the history curricula so you'd no longer learn about the great, extraordinary uniqueness of America's founding, the concept ideas written in the Federalist Papers that gave rise the that, that we have the Declaration of Independence and those ideas and the Federalist Papers and the Constitution, all of that structure of America, they have no clue. They've been taught America's evil and racist, and it's a bad, 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 bad country. And all of this is intentional. It is not because we just kind of forgot to think about it. It's intentional. It's designed to, to destroy the fabric of America, designed to destroy the unity of America that can only exist if we embrace the ideas of America. The left has been doing this in public schools for decades, and now they are at, I mean, they are at, they think they've got it now. They've got the public schools so wrapped around the leftist ideology, and for many, many parents, they never saw it coming, never even realized it, never saw it coming. That's where we are. That's where we are with the public schools, which is why Prager is saying this. Just, you know, because we need to fix the public schools. We need to have, you know, we need to have a major revision of much that's taught in the public schools because not every parent can homeschool. But in the meantime, if you can, get your kids away from that, recognizing it's not education, it's propaganda. Your children are propagandized in the public schools, in the vast majority of them. As he says, there's a few isolated outlying schools where they still have their head on straight, but mostly not. Mostly they do not. And if you want to hold on to America, if you want to reject and, and fight against this massive push of Marxism trying to take down America, which is what we are watching right before our very eyes, a big step is to take away the power of the public schools. If you listened to my show a few weeks ago, I mentioned I had been in Washington, or actually in Florida, uh, at a, a conference and ended up hearing uh, Attorney General Bill Barr speak. Now, I have a lot of reasons I don't like him. I don't like some things he did under the uh, Trump administration. But it was a breathtakingly brilliant speech. And, and I put it up on my website, and I'll put it up again. I want to urge you to look up his speech he made about public schools. He was basically making the point that among the foundational, beautiful ideas of America, the, a foundational thing was the idea of the freedom of the individual to pursue his or her beliefs about religion, God, faith, not just to believe them, but to live them and to teach those to your children. Foundational to a family is parents passing on their faith. And he talked about the idea that public schools have now, we, it wasn't just that we decided to take prayer out of public school or remove you know, mention of God in public school. It was a, a radical, intentional, secularist religion 
now replacing in the mindset of many educators the place of religion in America. So kids learn one thing at school. You know, Carrie Kellerman, our guest a little while ago, was talking about the sponge in your brain. Your kid goes to school for 12 years, K through 12, and learns about the secularist idea and the, the idea that there's no reason to turn to a higher power for uh, values, morals, truth about life and existence. They learn. And then you try to come back and say, hey, kids, remember how we really care a lot about uh, God and following the word of God? Now, it's, it's gone. And his point, Bill Barr's point was, we really need to move in America away from having a public education school system. Now, I'm not advocating that today. You can't drop it overnight. But there is no reason historically, and we can look back historically and say we evolved into where there's an expectation that there are quality public schools available uh, to children, and many people send their kids to those. But the expectation that public school education should be the norm and that homeschooling is a little bit of an outlier, that needs to be reversed. And the public, the parents, the, ed the, the people who are invested and whose children will attend those schools, they need to be taking charge in the schools of what is taught. They need to have, as we, you know, if you are listening, uh, you know we had a conference last week in Texas. I hosted a conference on critical race theory. This is one of the extremely insidious, ugly, divisive, destructive of America ideas that has made its way front and center into America's public schools, one of the many ideas that have to be pushed out. One of the quick things as I wrap up our show today, uh, you may have seen this story last week, but there was a young woman who is a defector, as in she defected from communist North Korea. And she's a beautiful young woman named, uh, her first name is Y-E-O-N-M-I. I'm gonna go with Yomi, Yonmi. I don't know how you say it. Last name Park. But Ms. Park is a young former citizen of communist North Korea, escaped that brutal dictatorship, came to America, attended Columbia University. Well, I mean, astonishing accomplishment. So she goes to Columbia, you know, Ivy League, and at Columbia, she actually, she began making statements and she had an interview. I'm gonna share some of the things that she had to say about coming to school in America today. Columbia, you know, one of the Ivy League, you know, uh, smarter than everybody else, ruling elite class, smartest person in the room, you know, uh, mentality there. She says, not even in North Korea did she witness the kind of brainwashing that she witnessed at Columbia University. This is up on our website, by the way, americacanbetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down, list of lanes, you can read her story. She said she never saw such brainwashing in North Korea. She went on to say she was extremely dismayed because she was, she viewed, she came to America thinking she'd get the best education imaginable. And what she got, in her words, was indoctrination. She talked about, she said when she got to Columbia, she realized they were not about teaching her how to think, not critical thinking, not how to reason. They were telling her what to think. A primary, primary thing about education should always be teaching young people how to think so they can then process the next set of events, the next set of whatever is going on in the world they can process. Can't do that if you're never taught how to think. She also went on to say she had example after example of just open anti-Western sentiment. Western civilization, the beauty of Western civilization, anti-Western sentiment, which she said worse here than in communist North Korea. She went on to say, for example, during orientation, there's a book display or something. So she made a comment about how much she loved a lot of the classic literature they were going to be reading. A professor, a professor at Columbia said to her, um, she had said, I love those books. And she was serious. 
that this professor said, did you know those writers had a colonial mindset? They were racists and bigots, and they're subconsciously brainwashing you. This is what she's taught at Columbia over literature she liked. Now, you can have reasons that you are critical of literature as one of the great things of Western civilization, robust debate of ideas. You can have professors say, well, you know, I think this particular piece of literature uh, it has this deficiency or has this weakness. This professor is trying to encourage you. Don't, don't be listening to any of that at all. She also, said, she also said English was her third language. She learned as an adult. And so she has a hard enough time with pronouns because she said she'll often misuse them because you know she didn't learn English as a child. And she just, she talked about being corrected and told to be referring to an individual person instead of he or she is they. And she said, actually, her, she said, how the heck do I incorporate that into my sentences? It's chaotic. It is regression in civilization. She also went on to say she realized at Columbia she could no longer engage in intelligent discussion in class. She couldn't raise her hand, so I, I kind of think this, I see this. The goal was to say what the professor tells you to say. You have to think what he says or she says. You must write down or say what he or she tells you. She went on to say, I had to do what, I had to just shut up in order to graduate. But her worst, she, she holds the worst criticism of all, the strongest criticism of all, for her fellow students, or as she calls them, the woke scolds. She said, these students telling her that they are oppressed, that they are outraged at the oppression in America. She, I mean, just to give you, she said, I had, I literally crossed the middle of the Gobi Desert to be free. And these jokers, is my word, these jokers are at Columbia in the best country on earth with the most opportunity, most abundance, and they're oppressed and they are mistreated and it's an outrage. I mean, she was just completely, obviously entertaining and completely disgusted with them. And she said, she, she went on to say, I'll just tell you, and I'll tell you a good example about North Korea. So North Korea, you know, has a dictator, Kim Jong-un, you know, who's a roly-poly, you know, he can't even, his buttons are all stretched across his uniform. But she says in North Korea, everybody's starving, everybody's skinny. She said she, she learned growing up, you're always supposed to refer to Kim Jong-un as our dear leader. Our dear leader, yes, he's our dear leader. She finally saw a picture of him and one of her friends said, why is he so fat? I, we're all starving here. We're starving. And she realized she'd, been, she'd never processed the fact he's not living like the way everybody else is. His policies, his communism, his brutality keeps them all starving. And, and he's like putting on too much weight. Anyway, so she went on to talk about, she said, the worst of humanity in North Korea blew her away. And she's blown away when she comes to America to witness the brainwashing in the United States. She said to her fellow students, you guys have lost common sense to a degree that I as a North Korean cannot even comprehend. And I could read more about it, but she was a very entertaining, very entertaining commentary about America. But I wanted to close out today's show. We've been kind of focusing on education to say this. In America, our future depends on what our young people understand to be true. We have, as the termites have eaten away at the public education system for decades, we have already have a system where we have a significant percentage of millennials who emerge from school, don't believe the Holocaust happened, can't understand how it happened, 
think America is oppressive have no idea the virtues and greatness of freedom and free markets. They think socialism and Marxism and communism are the utopian, and these people are going to be voting. So if you really want to be active and want to be in charge and want, want to help save this country, get involved in education in some way or another, fight, criticize these ideas, stop humoring everyone on the left who keeps lamenting about their, their mistreatment in America, the fact that they are victims in America, that it's an oppressive society. They are blessed, every single person, whatever their race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color, or socioeconomic status, they are blessed to live here. Get that truth in your head and tell them, tell them your public, tell your public school teachers that fight in the public schools when they want to teach the curricula regarding America as repressive, fight back and fight now. Fight now before it is too late to fight. I close every show by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So I sent Matt the Wonderful has Why Fathers Matter, Why It Matters to You, Father's Day, and decades of research and common sense confirmed children, especially boys, at exponentially greater risk of personal and moral failure if there's no father in the home less discipline and a missing role model. This is not a slam on often heroic single moms. It's a statement of empirical fact. Karl Marx explicitly wanted to abolish the family because he saw it as about money and wealth. Black Lives Matter explicitly wanted to abolish a nuclear family because family, in their idiotic terms, was a white construct. Really? No, family is what blesses every child. Americans must not give in to this ridiculousness of abandoning the idea of family. Americans know better. They must stand up and say so. And on Prager and Ivy League entitlement, Dennis Prager threw down a gauntlet in a widely read column. The single biggest step Americans can take to save their country, remove children from public schools. U.S. public schools are teaching amoral, irreligious, critical race theory, and false U.S. history leading to racial division and hatred of America. Nothing good can come from this. When a North Korean refugee attending Ivy League Columbia says, it's worse than North Korea, you ought to pay attention. No teaching, says she, of how to think, only being taught what to think. Woke scolds populating the campus have no idea how to value freedom. There is no escaping the truth of reaping what is sown. Americans must insist on re-sowing the seeds of America's founding greatness. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you